Let us turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 20. I want to take as the text the 20, the 41st, and the 42nd Psalm, or rather the 42nd verse, which has the quotation from the 110th Psalm. Then certain of the scribes answered, said, Master, thou hast well said. After that they durst not ask him any question at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then his son? Ever since I came back from the trial in Seattle, Washington, where the judge gave the decision to the University of Washington, authorizing their teaching the Bible as literature, as they call it, I have been bringing these sermons on Sunday night, dealing with the questions that were raised concerning these various portions of the Bible. And I have this syllabus which they used in which they completely reorganized the Bible. They had the idea that in order to study the Bible as literature, they had to get the historical setting in which this writing took place. And therefore, it was a part of the course in English literature to produce for the students in writing for their study the whole story of the origin of the Bible and instead of giving the account that the Bible gives us they give the account of higher critics which completely destroys the trustworthiness and the accuracy of the Bible Moses never wrote the Pentateuch in fact Moses never wrote anything and Adam never lived he's just a nice symbol an allegory as they called it the poor Noah never had any ark to get into. It was just a nice story that they told in those days. had a nice meaning that you could deduct from it. Myths, legends, allegories, fables. And uh, tonight I want to speak about David. And next Sunday night, the Lord willing, I'm going to speak about King Cyrus. I've never preached on him. And I want everybody to hear this message. Because here God calls the name of a pagan king, an ungodly king, an unbeliever. And he calls his name 200 years before he was born. Identifies him. Tremendous prophecy in the 44th and 45th chapters of Isaiah. And of course that's a great problem to these men that don't know what to do with this book that has all these miraculous things in it. And they want to look at it simply as a human book. And these are the writings of men comparable to Shakespeare or Chaucer or Tennyson or other ordinary writers of men. And now tonight I want to turn with you to what they have to say about David and uh, the references now to the New Testament. But before I give you this thing of David, I maybe I'll speak on this, maybe I can expand it for another message, but I was so, I've been so impressed with the way in which they've really denied the apostles of the New Testament the right to claim their own epistles. Now, uh, here in the development of the New Testament, as it's explained here under the heading, Development of New Testament Literature. And they have a whole section entitled Catholic Epistles. 
And of these you have James and Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Jude. Now you see, Peter was an apostle, James was an apostle, John was an apostle, and Jude was an apostle. Here are four of the apostles. And the only other ones that you have writing in the Bible are Matthew and uh, Paul. And so here are four of the six apostles that are writing in the New Testament. And uh, they say that James did not write his book until between 100 and 150 A.D. Well, James, you see, uh, his death occurred somewhere around about 55 or 58 A.D. Peter also didn't write 1 Peter until 100 to 150 and uh, his second epistle he didn't write to 150 A.D. Well, Peter, possibly, he died somewhere around maybe 68 A.D. and he was crucified, according to tradition, head down. And then John, the beloved disciple, he lived to be the oldest one, but uh, he lived somewhere around about 90, at least 90 in that period, maybe 100, but at any rate, he didn't write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John until between 100 and 125 A.D. And then Jude, the brother of our Lord, he didn't write his epistle, the little epistle of Jude, until 125 A.D. So all these writings of Jude and James and Peter and John, according to this study here of the university, were written after these gentlemen had passed on, after they, they were dead. And this is the course that is, uh, they're studying out there. And now it's legal and lawful to introduce this sort of teaching at tax expense, public expense, in the universities. And it is an exceedingly uh, serious development in this whole area, as I have explained to you. Now when we come over to the Old Testament again, uh, we have this chart which they developed on the formation of the Old Testament. And in this chart on the formation of the Old Testament, the last books that we possessed, the ones that were produced the latest of all, were the book of Daniel after 200 B.C., uh, the book of the Psalms, and the book of Esther. And uh, David did not write these Psalms. There are some that may be attributed to him, that have been handed down or talk about it. But actually what we have in the book of the Psalms is simply a hymn book which was put together for the Jewish synagogues around 150 B.C. Well, beloved, David lived at 1000 B.C. And David wrote his Psalms under divine inspiration here 850 years, 800 years before uh, this university tells us that we got the book of the Psalms. So you've got a very serious uh, laying aside of the internal testimony and the record which the Bible presents of itself. Now in this series I have discussed with you Moses and then we looked into this matter of Adam and saw that he is a real person. He was the father of the race. And if you don't believe that, you can't believe that Christ also is the second head of the human race. You can't just tear things to pieces with any form of logic or any form of order. And then we got into the discussion of Noah, and last evening, last Sunday, we rebuilt the ark here and saw that it was no legend or tale, but it was a true report. And what rejoices my heart as I hear all these things and read all these things is that... 
uh, it's very obvious that the Lord anticipated this sort of attack upon his word. And in every single instance where these attacks are made, you can turn into the Bible and you find that the Lord is touching on the subject. That the Lord is dealing with it. The Lord is mentioning it. The Lord is saying something about it. He said, Moses wrote of me, spoke of Adam, spoke of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of Son of Man. And now we get into this subject of David. And the fact that David didn't write his Psalms. And again, we come face to face with the fact that here in the New Testament, our Savior talks about David. And he refers to him by name, and he makes these connections in such a way that you are in a most embarrassing position so far as Christ is concerned. To throw away the Old Testament in its historicity and its accuracy and authority, and still try to hold on to Christ in some way, as these liberals try to do, it's most embarrassing because it's Christ that you're trying to hold on to. He, he believed in David and he believed in Moses and he believed in Noah. And so you've got to explain Christ. And of course the explanation is that he was accommodating himself to the ignorance of his day. Had Christ been living today in these hours of enlightenment, of course he wouldn't have talked like that. He'd been sitting down and confirming the views of the higher critics. That's what we'd have had. But these uh, gentlemen that are engaged in this so-called scholarly endeavor uh, have just simply refused to recognize that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had something to say in these affairs because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And everything depends on it, but when the Lord Jesus Christ came out of that tomb and he was declared to be the Son of God with power, he knew all things, he had all knowledge, he said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. And whenever any of these disputes arise or any of these reflections are made, you and I are going to stand on the side of Christ, and the more so when we have a specific statement from his lips relative to one of these questions. We have believed the word of Christ to the saving of our souls. And we can believe the word of Christ in confirming the testimony of Moses. We have believed Christ to the answering of our questions concerning eternity, concerning death, and concerning life. And we can believe Christ in any questions that may be raised concerning David. Now, before I go on with this, of course, our minds are full of Harvey Springer. Mine is, and naturally so. We were so close, and you revel in the things of God. And uh, after uh, the message today, Ms. McIntyre and I went to the home of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lynn Gray Gordon, and we had the fellowship together at dinner, and we were talking about these things, just talking back and forth. And there was something that I'd, I've mentioned it just briefly, but it seems to come closer and closer. And this last week down at the Christian Admiral, I gave a message and developed these things. But do you realize that when you get to this great precipice called death, and you step over it, or you step out into that great unknown, that everything is a total darkness, that that realm is completely sealed been sealed off and uh, the apostle Paul says I was caught up into the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body I don't know but I saw things that it was not lawful for a man to utter so Paul never talked about it 
When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he'd been dead four days, and he came back from the tomb, and Lazarus never answered any questions. He never said anything about what it was like on the other side. And of all the things, we want to find out what it's like on the other side. After we've lived all our years, and everybody we know passes on down through that valley and goes out into that great place which we call eternity, we want to know. But nobody of all the millions and billions of human lives that have been on the face of this earth, they go through that door and it's sealed. Utterly, totally sealed. And you wonder about it, and I've got the answer. You've got the answer. It's the most perfect answer that you could ever have about this question of eternity and the question of death. The answer is that there's only one person who can talk about it. There's only one person who knows all about it. There's only one person who has the right and the authority to talk about it. And he's Jesus Christ. Thou hast the words of eternal life. He's the one who went into the grave. He opened it up. And no one will be an authority about heaven except Christ. He won't permit you to be an authority about him. Paul couldn't speak about these things that weren't lawful to utter. No one will be in a position to bring us any information of any kind from anywhere about that great realm that's just beyond the door of death except Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And God has sealed it off so that only his Son would be the person to whom we look and to whom we go. And who has the answers that are complete and perfect and satisfying. And so it is Jesus Christ. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Where shall we turn? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so with these words of eternal life tonight we come and we preach a risen Christ. We deal with a Christ who was raised from the dead. Now will you turn to this passage in the 20th chapter of Luke for a moment. And here our Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with the testimony concerning himself. And he's quoting uh, uh, the Psalms and he's quoting uh, uh, David. And in this 20th chapter we have an argument which he makes. And in the 39th verse uh, these scribes had come and they'd asked him some questions and he'd pretty well silenced them. And then verse 41, and he said unto them, how... Say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself, there's your intensified emphasis upon the person David, saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. In here is a direct quotation from the 110th Psalm, the first verse, which has a little words over it, a Psalm of David. And here our Savior goes back and says, David said it, he said it in the book of the Psalms, and then he proceeds to quote it, and it's a direct quotation from the 110th Psalm, which is one of the great messianic Psalms dealing with the Messiah, and then after he quotes it, we read verse 44. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? How could Jesus Christ be the son of David? And how could David call him Lord? And Jesus Christ is appealing to the word of 
David in testimony to the fact that Christ is Lord. And David's son, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also his Lord. Both are true. And if you'll notice through the New Testament in these references, thou son of David, thou son of David, thou son of David, if thou be the son of David, over and over again, you have these references in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the son of David. And finally, when you come to the last chapters of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, our Savior appears in his glory at the final consummation of all things, and he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and the morning star. And our Savior ties all that relates to him back into that Old Testament, back into Moses, back into David, back into Isaiah. And through his earthly ministry, he calls them by name. He quotes their words. And beloved, the word of Jesus Christ, which is indeed the word of God. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they're not my own, but the fathers that sent me. The words that I speak unto you, to you he said, they are spirit and they are life. And the word of the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead is the word that you and I are going to accept and defend in place of a course by the university in which they say that David didn't write the Psalms, that they're only a book of hymns that were brought together in the synagogue of the Jews 150 years before Christ was born. Did you ever imagine anything like this? They're bringing it now into the schools to teach it as literature and they're going to pay the salaries of the professors that do it out of the tax money that the people of this country produce. And it's a tax plan where they'll get thousands and millions of dollars in our universities and our colleges and our schools. And I heard down at the Admiral this week, we're down in Virginia, a group of women from the Women's Club and somebody else from another group went over to the school board in the local town and told them that they wanted the school board to set up a course in the high school in the study of the Bible as literature. And so they go as sweet, pious ladies of the women's club over there to the school board to get them to put this kind of a course in their schools. And there's a nice story in the newspapers. And you're going to see more and more of it from now on. Just mark my word. Once this little door has been opened, they're all going to move in. And then they'll come with all these different documents. You see, to study the Bible as literature, you do have to study the historical setting and the traditions and the practices of that time in order to understand the literature. And so instead, instead of taking the Bible as it is and setting it in the setting where God puts it, they take the higher critical attack for which there is no evidence of any kind anywhere to support it. As Dr. McCray has pointed out, they import the whole thing into the study, and so in order to understand this literature, you have to find out about the book that the Hebrews developed for a hymn book about 150 years before Christ. And what does it do? It undercuts and undermines the things that Jesus said about David because David didn't say them. It undercuts the things that our Lord Jesus Christ had to say about these Psalms of David. All right, now let's turn over to the book of Acts and let's look at the New Testament preaching and see some of the things that are told here about the disciples. And the first place that I want you to turn in relationship to the book of Acts is the second chapter. 
And here we get into the New Testament preaching and the establishment of the church and the appeal now of the apostles as they go out to preach Jesus and the resurrection. And they have these marvelous messages that they're delivering, persuading men that they must come to Jesus and be saved and be born into his kingdom. And in this second chapter of the book of Acts, down toward the end of this great speech, you find the apostle Paul speaking in verse 25 and 29. Uh, along in that section, uh, these beautiful references to, to David. For David speaketh concerning him, that is Christ. Well, let's go back a little further. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. The whole life of Jesus is laid out here before them. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God raised up again, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. My, isn't that magnificent? Moses, he said, testified to me. All things which are written in the scripture must be fulfilled, he said. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord... Always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and, de- men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you concerning our, the patriarch David. Now here is a magnificent quotation taken from the 16th Psalm, one of the beautiful Psalms of David, a messianic psalm. And after he quotes this reference to David, he said, David testified, he said, Now, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you about David. And he's quoting from David in the Old Testament to support his position and his message concerning Christ. David, the patriarch, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. You can't find the sepulcher of the Lord, it's empty. But you can find the sepulchre of David. It's with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit upon his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, that's where he is tonight, and that's where Harvey Springer is tonight. 
Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed this forth, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110, verse 11. Christ used it in his argument. Now Peter's using it in his argument in the establishment of the New Testament church. And then he moves on down. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. The fullness of the Messiah. The fullness of the Lord. And how does he establish it? On the basis of David's testimony. A prophet. And he foresaw in advance that God would raise his son from the dead. And in Psalm 110, a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever came into this world, God told David that his son would not seek corruption, that he would be raised from the dead. And David believed it, and David was regenerated, just as you will be regenerated tonight if you believe it. Beloved, you can't handle the Word. You can't preach the Word. You can't expound the Word without the power of the Word itself bringing to naught all of these assaults that are made upon the truth of God. Now let's turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. And we've just seen Peter here. Now let's turn over to Paul. And Paul goes out on his missionary journeys. And he's quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting David as he as he uh, developed 13th chapter it is of the book of Acts the passage which I read to you from the scripture now let's begin with verse 23 and follow it for a moment because I want you to see how all this is interwoven in such a way that you can't tear it to pieces you can't possibly separate the impact of this of this or rather verse 22 and when he had removed him, that was the Saul, the King Saul, just ahead of David, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall perform all my will. Oh, how God raises up men, beloved. How God raises up men, how he finds men, how he prepares men, how he uses men. And he says, I've raised up David. And he's a man after my own heart. And David, he says, is going to perform all of my will. Of this man's seed. Out of the lines of David, out of the succession of David. Hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Oh, beloved, 
Now we're coming to the preaching. This is the New Testament preaching. This is the word which has power. This is the message which when you preach it on the street corners, it has power. This is the message where you proclaim it on the radio. Men will believe it. This is the message which I proclaim in this church tonight. And as you hear it and you follow it, there's something about it that goes into your heart and you're warmed and refreshed and you believe it and you know that your soul is secure in the promises of God. Oh, how the psalmist goes on and how uh, the apostle Paul used him here in this great ministry as he's carrying on an evangelistic work in this area preaching the gospel that men might be saved. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I'm not he. Behold, there cometh one after me, who shows on his feet I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Men and brethren... Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, this is for you, this is for you to hear. Here's your Messiah, here's the seed of Abraham, here's the seed of David. This is the promises that God has made to you, that of the seed of the fathers, he would raise up this great one to be the Savior and the Messiah. Now verse 29. And when he had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. Everything that took place on that cross, the 22nd Psalm written by David, messianic, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The casting of lots, the riven side, the spear handled, the nail prints in his hand, all oh, the clatter and the clamor and the blasphemy that was about the foot of that cross, the barking dogs, the bulls of Bashan, all that was being said against the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all in the 22nd Psalm, 1,000 years before Christ was crucified. And you can look in that 22nd Psalm and they've got a crap game going on, the rolling of the dice at the foot of the cross to cast for his vesture which was not in two pieces. And when they had fulfilled everything that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. You know, they couldn't take him down until the Bible was fulfilled. <laughs> they couldn't take him down from the cross until everything that was in the Bible had been fulfilled concerning his first coming. They didn't dare do it. They couldn't do it. Talk about providence. Talk about predestination. Talk about the eternal purposes. The place where you see them is in the cross. Now let's read on the rest of this great sermon. This is marvelous preaching, beloved. And it's recorded here, and it's all to the end that we shall believe the prophets and believe that they spoke of Jesus Christ. Verse 29. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses, his witnesses unto what? The people. Beloved, we're to go out and to tell everybody everywhere that our Christ is raised from the dead. We're to go to the ends of the earth and tell the people that our Christ hath been raised from the dead. He's come back out of that tomb. He's put light in it. He's forever sanctified the grave for the saints. We're to go everywhere. And we're to be witnesses to the fact that our Savior has been raised from the dead. All right, a little further in this great message. 
And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Oh, to have been living in the first century when Christ came, oh, to be there and to see the apostles and the disciples as they preached and men believed it to have been present in the hour. Here was Bethlehem and here was the earthly ministry of Christ for three and a half years. Here were the literal fulfillment of all these predictions concerning his nature, his person, his miracles, and then his crucifixion and finally his resurrection of the dead. To have lived in the days when these things were being fulfilled and here we're being told they took place at that very time. But you know, beloved, the centuries have passed. And you and I are living in another day. And we're living in a day that this old book talks about just as plainly as it did the first day of his coming. It's telling us of the end time. And I want to tell you, beloved, that everything that's in this blessed book concerning the second coming of Christ is just upon us. And we can talk about the wonders of this first coming and how they were there. And these disciples get up and proclaim this. But I can stand here in this pulpit tonight and I can tell you on the authority of this infallible record, which is the word of God, that Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes in the clouds of heaven with this power and this great glory, he's going to raise the dead. And we preach a gospel of resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Son of God. Now let's move on down. We've still got some more about David here in this passage because I want you to see how he weaves it in and identifies it with the blessed word of God. And then we read in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same in that he raised him from the dead as it is also written in the second psalm. They already had them numbered by this time, didn't they? Isn't that nice? It's already numbered. Jesus had the same book of the psalms that we have. He had the same documents in his possession that we have tonight. And now look at this quotation. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Of course, that's a quotation from the 55th chapters of Isaiah. But that's over there in this terrible section that nobody knows who wrote it. It's a very interesting thing. Beloved, you just get into these things and every time you turn around, you got the Bible standing in the face, you got some connection, you got some relationship, and you can't tear it to pieces. You can't get away from it. This is the message, beloved, that has in it the words of life. This is the message that has in it the pardon of sin. This is the message that has in it justification unto life. And this is the message that the apostles preached and which started the church of Jesus Christ in its breadth of ministry unto the Gentiles. I'll read a little further. Please take the... I'm reading now from the book of Acts in the 13th chapter. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm... Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There's Psalm 16 again, verse 8, and also in verse 11. For David, after that he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, and that he went back to corruption. 
and was laid with his fathers and what? Saw corruption. His body decayed and went back to the dust. And that's where David's body is tonight. It's gone. But he whom God raised from the dead, what is that, sir? Saw no corruption. So here he appeals to David again in behalf of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, dear saints, tonight that these ungodly, these unbelievers of our day who hate God and hate the Word of God are going to do everything in their power to obscure the teachings of the Bible and to deny the things that the Bible teaches us concerning these great realities of salvation and redemption. And I want you to understand that your pastor sees these things. And I want to do what I can in my country. And the minute we get into these things, some of these, we got some Baptists around here, independent Baptists right now, that are objecting to Dr. McIntyre's uh, political action. And some of them are objecting. They say McIntyre shouldn't have gone out in the name of the ICC and gone out there to that court and fought this thing. That's getting involved in uh, civil and political matters. I'm beginning to get that kind of criticism, that kind of reaction. It's utterly ridiculous. But we've even got some pious people in our own movement that object to this sort of thing. But beloved, we have to go out and do what we can in the areas where God has given us our freedom. And the last thing in the world Christians should do is to sit around and find themselves in a society where their money, which they put into the tax treasury, will be used to undermine the testimony of the Bible. Now we still go on down just a little further. My, what a beautiful sermon this was that Paul preached. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached, that is through Jesus is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Therefore, brethren, he says, beware of your unbelief because you'll be cast away, as the Lord says here. In verse 43, Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, speaking unto them, persuading them, who speaking unto them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now verse 44, And the next Sabbath came almost the whole city together to hear what? The word of God. The word of God. The Psalms. David. Isaiah, Paul, they came to hear the word of God. And then we look down verse 44, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be preached unto you. Here is a sermon. Here was a preaching. And Paul is now saying that the message he just gave them is the word of God. It was necessary that what I have delivered unto you be given unto you because it's the word that Paul is preaching. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes David in these several places and all of it together joined in this marvelous message of salvation is the word of God. Oh, how you hunger for it. Oh, how you long for it. Oh, how you long to have preachers when I think tonight that Harvey's gone and his voice has been silenced. His voice has been still. 
And oh, there's so many that are glad he's dead. Oh, there are lots of forces tonight that are glad that this man has been removed from the stage of history tonight. They're glad he's gone. The church has two, two moods. On one side, we're glad too, but not for the same reason that the ungodly are. On the other side, we're, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We have two moods. Both of them are vital. Both of them are real. We're full of sorrow and we're full of joy. We're full of grief and we're full of victory. Both of those elements are in our hearts, in our being when God steps down and takes away from us. I don't know where they're going to bury Harvey. I'm anxious to see, but he'll be, his body will be resting there in some grave under the shadow of the great Rocky Mountains that he loved. The other afternoon when Dr. Richard and I were coming back together in the car, we came back from WXUR. We'd been on the program. We drove back through Philadelphia and we passed one of the cemeteries there. And uh, I said, Charlie, there's, I call the name of the cemetery. He said, yeah. He says, I've been in there many times. And I said, yeah, we have, haven't we? And I said, uh, we know them pretty well, don't we? <laughs> we and I were talking about it. And you know, we got to thinking all through this area. In the years that I've been, I've been going week after week, month after month. We go out to these cemeteries. And then we lay the body away. The last word that's said over that body by any human voice is the word that's quoting the testimony of Christ. That's the way it should be. The other day we had the service of one of the lads here in the church, one of the young men, you know his name. We had it down here in Harley. We went out there and Somebody said, well, you're burying this uh, young man in the Bible Presbyterian section of Harley. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, just look over here. And sure enough, when you get to think about it, all that section of Harley Cemetery, here's Eric Cock and here's Clyde Kennedy and then here's so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And uh, nobody ever told me we had a Bible Presbyterian section of a cemetery. Never heard of that one before. But uh, then somebody said, you know, this is going to be a good place to be on the resurrection day. And I said, oh, it may be it's going to happen so quick you won't realize where you came from. It's going to happen so quickly. We'll be caught up to the clouds. We'll be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But why is it that we don't cremate? Why is it we don't believe in this utter destruction of the body by fire? Because we follow the example of the early Christians. It is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. We plant it like a seed. As you sow it, it shall not be that body that now is, but that body that shall bear grain. It shall be the same grain, the same body, the same glorious uh, person arising, but a new body on the resurrection day. And that's ours. Because we believe... David and the greater David 
that came out of that tomb and made us alive. Oh, beloved, you must believe tonight. And if you believe in this Christ tonight, you must serve him, you must live for him, you must suffer for him, you must die for him. You must die. There's nothing else that's worth anything. Just the Lord. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank Thee that these literary scholars who try to destroy David can't do it. The Lord knew all about it and mentioned his name and said he wrote and called his hymn book the Psalms. And he even named the second one. Father, we thank Thee that this was a hymn book that Thou didst inspire a thousand years before Jesus came. And when we see this unbelief, when we see this attack, when we see it getting into the educational world, when we see our taxes going to have to go for this sort of unbelief, Lord, help us in the battle. And may the Christian people realize that it's not wrong to go into court and to defend the Word of God in these places. May they get out of these wrong and erroneous views and may they be willing to uphold the hands of men who are willing to go in there and do it in our country. Now take care of us, Father, tonight. We thank thee for all who are here, especially the families. For Christ's sake, amen. Oh, let's sing this great hymn as we close this service tonight. Jesus paid it all, 104. Let's stand and sing it. <clears throat>